Welcome back. It's great to have you. In this week's episode, I'm trying something new with a shorter introduction, just to see how things work differently, or if they do at all. I speak with a wonderful communications and speech professor at the Boca Raton campus, Dr. Rhonda Trust Schwartz. Let's get right in. Okay, so tell me about yourself. You mentioned you moved from Connecticut. So what happened before Connecticut? Oh, How did great. you end up I in Connecticut? Talk. So thank you for inviting me on, by the way. Thank Absolutely. you so much for inviting me on to your podcast. I told you, uh, I think a month or two ago, that when you helped me, you have the voice for this. And um, <laughs> years ago, I worked at a radio station. Um, you definitely have the voice for broadcast. So keep well, that you. in mind. So I grew up actually in a small town called Medway, Massachusetts, a really small suburb of Boston, um, third generation. So uh, most of my grandparents were born in the United States. The rest came from um, Europe and settled in Boston for the most part. Um, one grandparent that I never knew, but thanks to Ancestry.com, I found family. That's so Brooklyn, but um, 75% Bostonian and 25% Brooklynite, if that's a thing. But I grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm very much a Red Sox and Patriots fan. And I loved New England. I loved growing up in the beautiful fall and in summers. But even as a kid, I loved sledding, but I loved winter for like a week. And the winters just were, as I got older, they got longer. And I always knew I wanted to be in a warm place. So after I finished my college, I went to Bridgewater State College and I was like legacy. My mom went there. It uh, was built in the 1800s. It was known to be a teaching college. I went for communication. So I studied communication and I went to a state college and that's why I'm so passionate about state colleges. I got in everywhere I applied and some were very, you know, expensive private schools and cities. And my parents sat down with me and said, okay, it's your decision but here's what we can help you with. And here's what you'll have to do for loans. And my parents, my mom wasn't working. My dad uh, was retired from working in the, the, the transport, the T in Boston. It's like the mm -hmm. transport. And, and he was a retired and he started driving a school bus. So I didn't, you know, I came from a very middle-class family and my parents were very clear. They're like, you do what you want, but we just, we want to tell you what loans are and expenses are. So I opted to go to Bridgewater State College, which was about an hour from where I grew up. My mom went there. A lot of family members went there and I had the best education. It was the perfect place for me. It was a medium sized college. Um, a lot of students commuted like Palm Beach State, but they did have mm -hmm. dorms. So but even people who lived on campus, a lot of them would go home for the weekend. But sure. I was very active. I was a cheerleader. I was on student council. I was a tour guide. I wrote for the newspaper. I did a hundred things on campus, so I didn't have to leave. And so nothing has changed. No, nothing has changed. I just jumped in and I flew, and I and I loved college. I loved classes. My first semester freshman year when I took my first couple communication courses, that's when I knew I wanted to be a professor. So I'm going to tell you kind of like the story of how I moved a lot and how that is all because of how I wanted to teach college that, that kind of like pushed me to move all around the country. So I had the best professor freshman year, Dr. Holton. And I just sat in her classroom one day listening to her speak. And I said, Oh my gosh, 
I want to be a professor. She inspired me so much, the way she connected to students, the way she taught the material, and it just clicked right there at age 18, you know, in an October, New England fall morning while sitting in class is I want this life. I want to be a professor. So I loved my classes, you know, for the most part, some of the gen ed classes were, you know, a struggle, but for the most part, I loved college. I loved learning. I tried to take advantage of every opportunity that was given to me. You know, like I said, I cheered. I did this, this, the student dorm um, council. I forgot you know, residence hall, student council, newspapers, tour guides. My uh, first semester of senior year, I went to England and studied abroad. It was an exchange program. So I just took advantage of all these opportunities. And truly, I just loved academia. I just loved it and stayed with the communication major. At the same time that I loved communication, I also really loved health. And I knew I wanted to perhaps merge the field somehow. So that was always in my mind, but I also took some really cool uh, women's studies classes and had some amazing women's studies professors. So even that field kind of intertwined with my goal of doing something with communication and health and women's, women's health. I also worked on campus. I worked off campus, I coached gymnastics, but on campus I worked at the health center and the women's center, you know, work study jobs. So I had work study and I met the most amazing people advocating for women's rights and not just women's rights, but diversity. I I joined a diversity club and I got really involved with just opening people's minds on campus. So I, again, I knew I wanted to do something with all of that, health, communication, women, culture, diversity. So when I got back from England, my second semester senior year, I started applying to graduate schools. And at that point, it was a little late for assistantships. And I knew if I wanted to go to graduate school to earn my master's, I knew I eventually wanted my doctorate, but I was starting with my master's first. I wasn't even thinking about doctorate at age 22. I knew I wanted that, but at 22, I knew I wanted my master's. Was applying for master's programs and I knew there were no funds for that. I didn't have a savings account for a master's degree. I knew I had to earn an assistantship. So I knew if I wanted to get a master's, I had to get a scholarship, assistantship, whatever. And by February, a lot of the universities I applied to already gave out their assistantships for the following fall. So I applied to NYU, Emerson, BU, UCF, and FAU because I wanted to get out of the Northeast. I actually got in everywhere. I feel like back then it was a lot easier to get into places. I don't don't know if that's true, but I just feel that students have a harder time getting in. But anyways, I got in and again, I got all the financial packages and the only schools left that had assistantships were Emerson and Boston and FAU. And FAU said to me, well, we really want you to be a a TA for communication, but we're already booked for this fall. But we know that the residence life people need someone. So we're going to connect you with them since you have this experience in residence life student council. So I was awarded a full assistantship to run a freshman dorm, 350 FAU students, (laughs) 
the dorm is now demolished. It was called Tamuqua Hall. That was in 1999. So I packed up my things that summer. You know, my dad helped me drive down to Florida. We drove to Florida and I moved into my apartment, which was in the bottom floor of the dorm. And FAU was going to pay for my first year of my master's program, uh, provide me with health insurance and give me a small stipend. I think it was $250 a week. I felt like the wealthiest person in the world because I had <laughs> my own apartment paid for, grad school paid for, health insurance paid for, and 250 a week. Like, what do I need to buy? And in addition to that, as soon as I moved here, I got a babysitting job. I worked at a gym. I had other income. Um, I, got my, I always worked. I, I started my babysitting business when I was 11 years old. So I've always worked. Like I've always, I always worked since I was 11. I literally always had a part-time job. So, you know, what's the big deal working a few jobs in addition to going to grad school, being a TA, you know, I was living in Florida and it was amazing. I had the most amazing professors that first year. Grad school was much easier for me. It was just, I was taking three classes a semester of courses that I loved. I loved every course. I had the best professors who I'm still in touch with now. And the end of the first year, they said to me, okay, can you please teach for us your second year of your master's? We have an assistantship opened up. And at that point, I was kind of getting burnt out of running a freshman dorm. You know, the 3 a.m. fire alarms, the kids <laughs> smoking in their dorm room or bringing in a kid, you know. So I was like, yes, please. I would love to teach, uh, be your TA. And again, the second year of my master's, they paid for my grad school, I got a small stipend each week and my health insurance was paid for and I was able to move off campus and share an apartment with one of my good friends from my childhood who'd moved down to Florida to live with me. So it was great. And that year I really got to thinking, okay, I know I really want to teach. I love it. I love teaching college. I really started thinking about PhDs. And I didn't know much, and I should have, in retrospect, asked my professors that had PhDs at FAU what that process was like or what I should be doing to apply, but I didn't, and I just knew, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a job right out of my master's. I want to be a professor, and I started applying and realizing that, wow, a lot of them were asking for PhDs right out of the gate, and I wasn't aware. I knew you needed one in some places but I didn't realize I'd see it in so many job calls and job descriptions. At the same time, I had a whole bunch of friends at that stage who were moving out to Southern California. So I was done with my master's in Florida. I knew I didn't want to go back to New England. I just loved the, the warmer climate. And uh, so I moved to San Diego. I ended up, it's a long, crazy story which is its own podcast, but I went home that summer to Boston. And while I was temping before I moved to San Diego, I temped for this company. They were a communication team building company and they were actually based out of Scottsdale, but they had a position in San Diego. And that was bizarre because I was moving there with or without a job anyways. <laughs> and my plan was to move to San Diego, uh, become an adjunct and then apply for PhDs for the following year. So I ended up moving out with a job. I was a corporate team builder. So I did these really cool, fun team building activities for big companies. This was pre 9-11, a couple months before 9-11. So people were traveling and spending a lot of money on 
scavenger hunts. And some of my clients were Pfizer, Deloitte and Touche, um, big companies that would do their retreats in San Diego because it's a great place to have a convention or, or retreat. So I worked for this company and at the same time became an adjunct. So I would have a, one class, you know, one class. By the second semester, so I moved out to San Diego in July, um, 9-11 happened, and that really hurt the team building industry. People weren't flying out to San Diego um, to do these big team building events. People were scared of flying. There was just so much uncertainty. So by December, I was like, okay, I'm going to pick up more classes. I'm going to put myself out there. I, want, I, I know I want to be in academia. The team building thing is a little bit uncertain now because of 9-11. So I started applying to more colleges and universities. And in January, I started teaching at the University of San Diego, Mesa College, which is a community college, and um, Miracosta College, which is in about 45 minutes north of San Diego. It's by a big military base um, in Carlsbad. Camp, it's right near Camp Pendleton. So I was really... some. I was called a freeway flyer, you know, adjuncting at three places. I had so many classes. I had to turn down classes. And the really cool thing about adjuncting in California, they give you benefits. And I did not know that. Yeah. And I had, um, you wow. had to be two semesters in to start getting health insurance. So wow. by my third semester adjuncting, I had amazing health insurance and I was making money. I mean, granted it was adjuncting, but I was, I was pretty secure. And, um, I was, you know, teaching the max at each institution. I also started working for the U.S. Marines as a speech coach. So one of my friends from one of my adjuncting friends said, I have this great consulting gig. It's for the U.S. Marines. It's at their recruiter school in downtown San Diego. And I did that. And they were the, the best students I've ever had in terms of behavior. Um, mm -hmm. They were disciplined. They had to pass or they would be sent home. They were in recruiter school. So they'd be sure. sent back to a lot of them would be sent back to Iraq uh, because this was, you know, a year after 9-11 at this point. And it was also a very eye-opening job because I'm um, telling them to, you know, be bubbly and smile and have passion when they're speaking. And some of them had just seen their friend get killed literally in front of them. And they were 19 years old. So it was hard for, you know, for me to be like, oh, wow, you know, I need to change some of the things I'm expecting of them. But it was a great job. And I love that. So that was really, I had four things going on in San Diego. And again, I wanted the PhD. So I applied, uh, I applied to one school. And that was the University of California, San Diego. I didn't have any publications. I just sent an application in and just like my bachelor's and my master's, I assumed I'd get in because I always got in. I never didn't get into a school. Well, I didn't get in. So I called them and I said, oh, excuse me, I applied for your PhD program. And why didn't I get in? You know, I had a perfect GPA from grad school. They're like, um, and they were very kind and very helpful. Well, do you have publications? And I said, no. Uh, do you know what our professors research? Mm, no. Do you know if we're quantitative or qualitative? Uh, no. 
I had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't realize that at, for communication at the PhD level, you need to be very focused. You need to connect with professors at least a year before you apply to the program. You need to know if they're statisticians, if they're quantitative, qualitative research, if they're ethnographers. You need to go to conventions and meet these people before you apply to the program. I didn't know any of that. So I got on the phone and I called my professors from FAU who wrote me letters, who mentored me. And I said, can you believe this? I can't believe I applied to one school and I didn't get in. And they laughed at me and they laughed hard. <laughs> and they said, you know what, Rhonda, when we applied, we applied to 15 to 20 schools each. And we got into one or two and we had publications. And I was like, what? why didn't anyone ever tell me this? So the second year I got smart, I applied to two programs. <laughs> oh, you, you doubled your attempts. I applied to two programs. Um, I was so busy with my adjuncting and teaching at the Marines that I didn't have time to go to conventions. I didn't have time to get a publication going and I didn't get in. I think they were UT, Austin and Santa Barbara. Again, I didn't even, I didn't know what they were about. I just kind of blew it off that year because I was so busy with what I was doing in San Diego and I was happy. Um, the third year, I got serious. I said, okay, I really want this PhD. Um, I'm 25 at this point. I'm like, I know PhD will take a while. So I need to get serious. So I called my old professors up again at FAU. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to seriously to apply for a full-time assistantship PhD program. Because I didn't have money for the PhD. I needed to be 100% paid for, just like my master's. So I knew that it was even more competitive because not everybody gets an assistantship who gets into the PhD program. So I went to a convention. It was actually held in Miami. So I was living in San Diego. I flew to the National Communication Association, which is one of the largest organizations in, in my field, their annual conference. I met people at that conference, uh, programs that I was interested, programs that had PhDs in communication and culture programs that had PhDs in health communication. I went and I met professors. I told them I had actually had business cards made and I went and introduced myself at every session. I went to listen to them speak. I went to the social hours and I passed out cards and I introduced myself and I said, you're going to be getting an application from me and I hope you consider me as a strong applicant. And I did that. I think I applied to five or six schools. So I didn't, you know, I didn't do 15 or 20. I also, at the same time, partnered with one of my professors from FAU and started writing a book chapter. Oh, hang on, I'm just going to turn off my phone. So I started writing a book chapter. And the, the book chapter, and it's published, examines the romantic relationship in the film Titanic and looked at how the female role in Titanic was strong and actually physically bigger than Leonardo DiCaprio's role and wealthier and powerful and survived versus the male character who was skinnier, poorer, and weaker and died. And so I looked at women's roles and, and the, how it challenged the status quo. So it was like a cultural studies analysis and feminist analysis on the Titanic, which I was obsessed with. At that time, in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was obsessed with Titanic. So I partnered with my professor. I had a book chapter. So now I had a publication. I had built my resume so it, was, uh, it would fit each school that I was applying to. 
And that year I got into two schools with full scholarships. Full ride. I got into Howard University, which is in DC. Uh-huh. And I was going to get a PhD in communication and culture while running their speech and debate program. Cause that's something I also did in San Diego. I, I worked as a speech and debate coach at one of the colleges I adjuncted. Uh, so I had the speech and debate experience. So I was accepted to Howard. However, very D- DC is very expensive. And I think the stipend to live, I was awarded was like 6,000 a year. And that was not even going to cover rent for a couple months. I think because it's so expensive there, there. So, and I also got into the University of Connecticut and I knew that program, it paid a lot. I, I got, a, I was awarded a full assistantship with a $20,000 a year stipend. So for the rural Connecticut, when you don't have that's to pay money. for, right, when you don't have to pay for school, that's a lot, you know, I knew I could adjunct. But I was a little hesitant about the University of Connecticut because they were a research one university specializes in specializing in quantitative analysis. So I, I had to be a number cruncher. There was no analyzing culture and doing interviews with people in ethnography. It was numbers, 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 numbers. You couldn't even mention qualitative research in my department. So I love DC. I love Howard. I love culture and communication, but I chose a different route. And I ended up at UConn, and that's where I did the PhD. Along the way, I was adjuncting, you know, to kind of build up the savings, if you will. I was, you know, getting married at the time and starting a family, so I, I couldn't just rely on that salary. It was four years of coursework, um, two mini dissertations, and a very, very challenging comprehensive exam, which had to be defended orally as well. Uh, UConn had a very rigorous program. They've changed it since. To, I think they removed the too many dissertations we had to do before a big dissertation. And so it was four years of, about four years of coursework. And then I took three years to dissertate because I started um, having children and working full time as well at, at Fairfield University. So I was a visiting professor while dissertating and while having kids. But we were living in Connecticut, a climate which we didn't want to be in. We, we didn't want to be in there um, and loved, loved the fact that I was earning my PhD, but knew I had to leave, knew for my mental health I had to leave, even though I have so many roots in New England and the New York area. So finished the, the, finished the PhD in December of 2011, officially finished, uh, walked at the graduation the following May, and we packed up, packed our house, sold our house, shipped everything to Florida. I did not have a full-time job. I was going to teach part-time at FAU and part-time at Palm Beach State. I had connected with a, a man named Stephen Frischman, who's now my department chair, saying, hey, I'm moving to Florida. Can I adjunct this? So this was, this was in 2012, where we sold the house and were packed up. And moved in with our in-laws, my in-laws, because we were buying a house in Parkland. And a week before we were about to drive down to Florida, my old department chair from Fairfield University called me and said, I'm at Boston University and we want you for a year. And my mouth dropped because growing up in the Boston area, BU was just always like a big deal, a big school, especially for communication. So I said, you know, Dr. Shanahan, I'm, I'm flattered, I'm honored, but 
we just shipped all of our furniture to Florida. We have a deposit on a house in Florida. And he's like, do you have a job in Florida? And I'm like, well, mm, adjuncting. My husband's going to work remotely for his job in New York. He's like, you're moving to Boston for a year. It's going to change your career and define your career. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, we, it's a long story, but we ended up doing that. We, had, we lost some money, but the salary at BU for that year was really good. We lived in an apartment with our two kids. Now we have three, but at the time, two kids in Boston. I walked to work every day. I walked my kids to their preschool. We didn't drive. It was awesome. I had never lived as an adult in Boston. And the experience I gained at Boston University was priceless. It was such an amazing year. Um, I had a one-year position for someone who was out on medical leave. Uh, I did more research. I made some amazing friends, colleagues. And it was really eye-opening. My plan was, our plan was, after that one year, start applying for full-time jobs now that I would have a BU on my resume and some more publications and move out of the Northeast. But I was recruited by a small school in Connecticut called Post University. Post University is about 100 years old. They only have about 500 students on campus, but they have about 15,000 online. Oh, wow. And they have a very good online program. They have a lot of contracts with military, so they have a lot of active duty students. But they don't—they didn't have back in July of 2013 a communication major. So they heard about me and they recruited me to build and design their communication and media studies major for their face-to-face campus students, which was a small amount, but an online program as well. For the majority of their you know, students were online. And I said, but I've never taught online. <laughs> they said, you're going to learn. And they offered me a great salary. And uh, once again, we pushed our dreams of moving to Florida aside because I, at that point, I didn't have an offer in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I had a family and a husband who had moved all around for me already. So We made the decision to move back to Fairfield, Connecticut, which is about an hour outside of New York City, and um, moved back and got a house, and I started working for Post. And it was such a love-hate relationship because Post was a private for-profit institution, Mm -hmm. and it was everything that I'm like, you know, I'm all state college all the way. All of my degrees are from state schools. You know, my bachelor's, master's, and PhD are all state school. So... It was hard for me to listen to like, I know they have a very corporate structure and as an academic, I don't do corporate structures, you know? So that was interesting, but they did online really well. I don't agree with a lot of things that they um, may have done, um, but they did online really well. They do online really well. They know how to build and, and, um, disseminate amazing online programs and it works for a lot of students who have to earn their degree online or choose to earn their degree online. So I, I enjoyed that. I learned a lot, but I always knew that I wanted to move to Florida and live a different life. Even if that meant, you know, having earning a different salary, like uh, my quality of life, living in a warmer climate. And we had family here too. And I just also knew that I was very committed to state college education. State college education was what gave me my love of um, higher ed. And I knew that's where I would end up. 
as much as I loved, you know, learning about online and building a program at Post University, I also knew that being at a college where maybe I don't want to sound like, but I, I feel like I could change the lives of people at a state college more so than some other institution. Sure, the way my yeah, life that's understandable. Changed, you know, the way my life was changed by my professor at my state college. And so I started looking and I was, we were really looking at Southern Florida and Southern California. And I was looking and my husband, you know, in between was in for his former job. He was always in front of the computer and he was always looking for me. And I have to uh, say, he did find this Palm Beach State job. It wasn't advertised on higher ed. It was like on their website. So it was kind mm -hmm. of, you know, and he found it and I applied. And I, that year I applied to about 20 jobs. And <laughs> you finally learned your lesson. I learned my lesson. Like people laughed like, oh, you have to apply but it's true. And as you know, it's like a nine month process. I applied in October. Mm -hmm. I found out I got the interview in March. Um, I passed the first interview. I went in mid-March, flew down to Florida and had the second interview and then found out in April that I, I got the job. And I, I found out I was one out of hundreds. Um, wow. Yeah, which I don't know if that was an exaggeration or not, but I was told that I was one out of I think initially like 200 applicants. And of course, I'm sure they narrowed it down to like 10, you know. It's still, even if 200 people think of applying, even if 150 of them are appropriately qualified, then that's still right. amazing odds. So, and I, I do think having that online experience helped me because I remember at my interview talking about, and I was excited about it. I was one who years ago was against online learning. Honestly, mm -hmm. I remember years ago it was first brought up at a meeting at Fairfield University. And I said, how can anyone ever get a communication degree online? But as I got into it and realized this does work for the certain student, uh, for, you know, and it works well. And for the student who wants it to work, work well. So anyways, um, Palm Beach State became my home fall uh, August of 2016 and I love it. I absolutely love it. I love what I teach. I think what I teach is so important. I teach communication, human communication, which encompasses also how to give a speech, but we also talk about how to communicate with your partner, how to communicate with people you work with, you live with, how to communicate with people in general, self-esteem, self-confidence. We talk about the media's impact on us. We talk about, I, I was able to bring in my passion for health communication. We talk about health communication because while I earned my PhD at the University of Connecticut, I worked for the Center for Disease Control on a health communication grant where I um, helped conduct research for a professor who was trying to design a safe sex video game to help educate inner city youth on how to uh, negotiate safe sex with a partner. Sure. How to talk about sexual um, health, how to talk about getting tested for STDs and HIV. So I was able to bring that into the classroom. I have my students do this really cool persuasive health speech where they have to pick a health topic and try to persuade their classmates maybe to wash hands or to get tested for a disease or to not text and drive. So I'm able to bring in my passions for health um, into the communication class. And I always tell my students, regardless of major, whatever major you decide to do, you're always going to know how 
how to communicate. Whatever field you go into, communication skills are priceless. That's why Palm Beach State, among other college and colleges and universities, require that you take a communication class because the skills in the class are essential. So that's, I'm here, I'm here now. <laughs> I'm here at Palm Beach and I love it. Um, along the way, especially living in California, I got into other really cool things that I'm interested in. I became an herbalist. So I went to herb school. Um, that was fun, you know, learning about medicinal herbs. I also became a doula, which is a birth assistant. And mm -hmm. I also became, um, when I moved back to Connecticut, I became a lactation counselor and actually had my own business helping new moms and their babies with um, breastfeeding. So I was able to incorporate those health passions sure. I talked about along my personal and academic journey. Which I if you don't mind a segue, that was something I, I was actually interested in about. Um, recently, maybe not recently, a couple of months ago, there was an email that was sent out. I don't know if it was you or if it was someone else that sent out mentioning that there was either a room that was available or a private space that was available for, uh, well, mothers that needed to nurse. And uh, I, I read that email after having gone, I think I had just come back from a conference and I can't remember which one it was. Probably room, research and undergrad math education. It was either that or it was one on inquiry-based learning. But both those conferences, at least the, the people that attend, they give a fair bit of, um, what word do I want to use? They think about the needs of all their attendees, as opposed to just saying, okay, you know, cisgender white male is going to show up and going to give a talk on, you know, the importance of inquiry-based learning in mathematics. It was the first conference, one of the two of them, where I was asked for my gender pronouns and I didn't know what that was. So I said, what the hell is a gender pronoun? So it was not judgmental in any way. They said, well, this is what a gender pronoun is and how would you like to be identified? So I said, well, uh, what are my options? I, I didn't know that there were options there. So I, I picked he, him, his. And then I said, well, what did you pick? Because now I don't want to be wrong. I don't know if this is a test of, of, of a sort. Um, and then they asked if I were traveling with someone who was nursing. I said, no, but what if I meet someone who's nursing? So, you know, is there a, an extra lunch ticket or something that I get out of this? And they said, no, we have uh, nursing pods yes. that we have at random spots, in, not random, but at, at predetermined spots on the conference floor where instead of having to go back to your hotel room or instead of having to you know, go to a room by itself, you can go and, and privately nurse your yeah. child. Uh, and I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> You know, there's no reason why a, uh, a mother of a young child should be excluded from presenting at a conference or, you know, mm -hmm. it, and again, prior to that, I had never thought about that because I'm not a mother with a young child. So you exactly. know, it was something that I wasn't even aware uh, that, that could potentially have been an issue for people wanting to attend these things. It's, it's very, it's really true. So these pods are set up, and in the case of Palm Beach State, there's a designated space for women who are either have a baby with them or women who are away from their baby and need to pump milk. Sure. Because, you know, so many women that have babies are in the workforce and mm -hmm. they are choosing to nurse their babies and they have 
to do that, you know, so many hours a day, or so, I'm sorry, so many times a day. So by law, federal law, uh, companies with more than 50 employees have to have a designated space other than a restroom with a door that locks. They have to, it's, it's law. Okay. Um, so for me as a professor and other professors at Palm Beach State, no brainer, most of us, not all of us, have our, our own office. Most of us have our own office, so it's never an issue. But it occurred to me when I had a student who gave birth, not in class, but during the middle of the semester, and she came back a couple of weeks later, and she told me she had to go out to her car on a 99-degree day and use this apparatus, plug it in, in her car. And I said, well, that's awful. Like, you shouldn't have to sit in your parking, in the parking lot where you're not really private, and pump milk to bring home to your baby and there's got to be a room on campus and then I found out there really wasn't a room like you know they can make a room if someone had asked mm -hmm. and then as I did more investigation I found out that they had inquiries they had women coming to job interviews for example flying from all over the country sure bringing, their, bringing their breast pump with them and showing up and saying okay where's your pumping room and there wasn't one. There wasn't a designated one. They always sure. would make a space. Make It would be a makeshift thing. Right. Sure. I understand. Um, so fortunately, um, the provost on our campus did a great job of working with facilities and acquiring a space. So there's a designated space that anyone can use, student, faculty, staff, visitor can use. So it's wonderful. And I believe all campuses at the Palm Beach have them and yes you will see these pods in the airports most airports have these pods mm -hmm. and they usually have like advertising on the outside um, there's inflatable pods because we did a lot of research about pods before we were thinking of getting a pod and having it near the gym um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that the convention you went to had a pod because if someone didn't want to go back to their hotel because they were in between, you know, presenting and listening to a presentation, they had this option. That is amazing. And it makes me so happy that, you know, we're, we're seeing that. I, when I spoke with the other faculty members that were there or grad students or whoever, they mentioned that their institutions had these things or they had designated uh, the privacy rooms, they call them. And, and I was curious, I reached out to fellow faculty at other institutions in Florida mm -hmm. and they were similarly clueless as I was. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's just a socio-political climate in I, the I state? Do, I do like Florida. Um, so there's federal law surrounding breastfeeding and pumping, and then each state has their law. All right. So federal law, and this was under um, I forgot the name of the act Obama put forth. I used to know all this. In Connecticut, I was the policy and advocacy chair for the state and, and, and breast, the Connecticut Breastfeeding Coalition. So um, I had all this knowledge about five, seven years ago, tons of knowledge. But there was the act, I forgot the name of the act. There was a healthcare act put in place, not the family care. And it, Affordable Care Act? The what? The Affordable Care Act? It might have been under the Affordable Care Act um, because it's all. That's the only big, big, big. It uh, must have been under that. that. And it was definitely under the Obama administration. But um, under that administration, the, the, the law that came in if you have 50 or more employees, you must provide a designated space that cannot be a restroom. 
you must provide unpaid breaks without mm -hmm. penalizing that that law came in place um now each state has their own law uh, connecticut california vermont hawaii massachusetts state law supersedes federal law so in those states that i just mentioned if you have one or more employees you have to provide a safe clean room other than a restroom with a locked door so it varies by state and state law always super you know supersedes the federal law sure um, florida has they're not the worst in the country but their laws are definitely not as um with the times thank you with the times as these more progressive states does that make sense sure in terms so but you know it depends on the university i think fau does have a space i think um but they also have to think about it's not just for their staff their students and their faculty it's when they have conferences at their places at their schools mm -hmm. when they have visitors what does that say about the institution Ah, now I'm remembering. There was a professor, she's no longer at Palm Beach State. And when she came for her interview, um, she, before she came, she asked them on the phone, okay, and there'll be a designated space for me to pump. And she said she almost didn't come because of the response she got. Um, but, you know, again, all that was clarified. They, they did provide her with the space and and now there's a room. So that's, it's wonderful. And yes, I'm glad I was um, a part of that. When I first had my daughter, uh, another faculty member, I can't say it was my original idea, another faculty member said, you know, you're lucky you have your own office. What about other women? And then, then, that, then I had that student who didn't sure. have space. So those two, um, those two experiences were the catalyst for me to have the conversation with um, my provost and facilities and they moved quickly and they did it which is great. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I'm really happy that happened. And I feel like our provost has been very supportive with um, doing things that want to benefit the, the campus. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for that intro. I'm going to move to a couple of questions okay. that the previous interviewee asked. Um, I did have a question that I was going to ask, but it seems like I may have the answer already. Okay. If you weren't teaching, is there anything else that strikes your fancy that, you know? When I was younger, I always used to say I wanted to be a nurse on a soap opera. <laughs> that is oddly specific. <laughs> because I always wanted to be an actress and, and, and like in the medical field. So okay. um, I've often thought about going back to school for some kind of medical degree. And Palm Beach State does have an accelerated nursing program. Um, mm -hmm. And that would only to be to do work with like moms and babies and women's health advocacy. I don't know. I go back and forth between that. I don't. I don't know. If, um, then I've often thought maybe law. I've also <laughs> often thought about law enforcement because um, I'm really a role follower and um, I'd like to investigate things. So that <laughs> so I've always thought about things in my head, but when it comes down to the practicality of it. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I absolutely love what I do and working with the students that I work with is amazing. I just, I love our students. Fair enough. I, I, yeah, I didn't, after I heard you talk for the last bit, I didn't think that there was anything else that you'd rather be doing. 
So I'll move on to the other questions. These did not come from me, but from the person I interviewed last. What is your favorite book? Mm. Gosh, all right, that's a... Or top three, if that's easier. <sighs> there's I don't so know if I many. made it worse. <laughs> I mean, there's so many because... You know, there was a time in my life I read books all the time. Then there was a time in my life I didn't pick one up for a while. I'm now I've had the same book on my nightstand on and off since August because I'm always like reading or doing something with my kids. Um, but then I've picked up other books and read them in like a week. I honestly have to say that it's a book that I read years ago, and I I still have it on my bookshelf. I carry books. I've moved so much. So I've lived, my parents still live in the same house I grew up in, but when I was 18, I left and I moved. I haven't lived in the same address. I haven't lived at the same address for more than three years since I was 18. I'm hoping this house will be it for a very long time. Um, But I've moved so much and my books have always come with me. My husband was always like, oh my gosh, we have to take these again (laughs) because I have books and books and books and books downstairs on my bookshelf at school in my office, books, books, books. One of the books that stands out to me, and I read it when I was young, I first read it when I was 18, Celestine Prophecy. And there were a series of three. Do you remember who it's by? Yeah, I'm going to search. I could run downstairs on my bookshelf, but uh, I might get winded if I run back up. That's all right. I'm going to Google Celestine Prophecy. Oh, my gosh. Great book. James Redfield, James Redfield, and he wrote Celestine Prophecy, Celestine Vision. I have all three of them, and then one more. And um, just is it fiction, nonfiction? What kind of book is it? It's nonfiction. He talks about different psychological and spiritual ideas um, rooted in like Eastern traditions and like New Age spirituality. Mm -hmm. So after reading his book, I really wanted to go to Machu Picchu. All right. And I really wanted to go to Sedona and I just wanted to, and a lot of what I read back then is coming back when we talk a lot about mindfulness, when you hear a lot of people talk about being present and mindfulness and noticing the coincidences in life that maybe aren't coincidences. It's a very like spiritually deep book and it always, and I, I haven't read it in years. I mean, I first read it when I was 18. And then would reread it every couple of years. But again, I have it with me on my shelf. I can tell you exactly where it is in my bookshelf. I organize my books according to like <laughs> um, topic. And it really, 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 really stayed with me. Just like the principles of like ener- energy and people mm-hmm. and earth and magnetic forces it's really cool it's a really great book and again after he wrote that it was celestine vision and then there was a third one which i can't remember the third one celestine vision celestine oh i guess there was a film made about it hmm i haven't seen i'll the have fifth- to check it out i haven't heard <laughs> oh my gosh uh, yeah great great series. author and then there was another one um along another nonfiction that was kind of in that same family and then, of course, like the basic, um, I shouldn't say the basic fictions, but like um, Little Women, Gone with the Wind, you know, those sure. kinds of novels. 
um, that have always stayed. I love Shakespeare. Shakespeare is one of my favorite. And Emily Dickinson. My mother was an English major. And again, she went to the same college I went to. And she keeps books as well. So I have a whole bunch of her books from when she was in college. And mm -hmm. just reading through her, her Shakespearean sonnet books and Emily Dickinson books, those those really speak to me as well. Cool. Very yeah. Cool. So it's really interesting. I'm going to find those other books that he wrote in addition to Celestine Prophecy and Celestine Vision. And then I will let you know because it's chatting. Please do. It sounds interesting. And oh, I yeah. have a, a backlog of eight books that I'm trying to clear. Um, so once that happens, I, I'm, I was forbidden from purchasing more yes, books. That's, that's, and I, I remember as a child, my mother always took us to the library and she would come, like, she couldn't just pick one book. She would always have stacks of mm -hmm. books. And my dad would be like, oh, why are you taking so many books out? Um, <laughs> and then I found myself doing the same. So, you know, when I, when I go to a library, it's dangerous because I just, every, you know, I'm, I'm interested in books and learning. So mm -hmm. I think that's, but um, yeah, I had to stop buying books a while ago because I, I was moving so much and it was like, you know, getting expensive, creating all these books around the country. Sure. From my moves to Massachusetts, to Florida, to California, to Massachusetts, to Florida, back to Connecticut, A and B and C. So, but books are super important. I mean, it's very hard for me to part with them. Very hard for me to part with them. So that was a great question. Speaking of book, can I talk about my book? I was going to leave that until the end, if you don't mind. Perfect. Okay. So next question, what is something people would be or have been surprised to learn about you? <laughs> okay. Well, there are a couple of things. Um, well, I'm really, I really have dark hair, but it's gray. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not a surprise. That's obvious. I love Celine Dion. And I think a lot of people... <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people laugh and they're shocked. I, I recently went to her concert in Miami in January. It was her world tour. I had seen her several times in Vegas. She had her own venue in Vegas. But I think they, they think it's so funny because I also love hip hop. I also love rap from the 1980s. Uh, mm -hmm. I also love, um, you know, I, I'm a huge dancer. So I love dance music and R&B. And when they hear I love Celine Dion and it's not, I like, I'm obsessed. Um, I went through a big period where I was overly obsessed with Celine Dion and collected all kinds of books about her. So people often laugh and they're shocked that I'm such a big fan. In fact, I recently told friends Celine Dion was on a concert uh, last weekend. A lot of famous artists gave a concert. I don't know if you've heard about it mm -hmm. from their home, Stevie wonder to Celine Dion, sure. JLo, uh, and when I, I was doing the Zoom with my friends and, and my neighbors and friends, and I think they thought I was joking because I said, oh, I have to pause my Zoom right now because Celine Dion's <laughs> on. And everyone started laughing. They're like, oh, funny, Rhonda. I'm like, I'm not joking. Like, Celine Dion, to me, has such a fabulous voice. And her songs are very emotional for me. If you mm -hmm. listen to the lyrics and throughout my life, at different phases of my life, uh, there's always been a song that has come out that has been almost like therapy for me. So I know. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to defend your choice. Uh, Julie, my significant other, she is, I would say, a rival Celine Dion fan. And she, we did not go to that concert because I was like, no, I'm not paying money to go see Celine Dion. <laughs> and then she was quite disappointed, but 
yeah, she, I, I can understand this Celine Dion love affair. Yeah, it's crazy. My husband, um, never seen her and won't see her. But when we first started dating, we were living in San Diego and she had just opened up her venue in Vegas um, at the Coliseum next to Caesars. And it was like, surprise, he, he was able to get me tickets for her first week. So her entire wow. family, I got to see her entire family. I think it was her second or third show at her new venue I was at. And I have a very good friend that I met 20 years ago when I was an FAU grad student, my friend Adam, and he now lives in Miami. And he, him and I are like huge Celine fans and there's like a third friend, but she's in Massachusetts. So there are at least two other people in my life that are um, <laughs> obsessed like I am. And that will go to a show like Adam, you know, as soon as he found out she was coming to Miami, he got special order tickets on his car, you know, so, but there are not many, <laughs> not many of us. <laughs> No, I, I think that there's enough of you, but I, I wonder if they're as vocal as perhaps right. you or Julie are. I, I right, think people right. wear it as a badge of shame for some reason. Right. But hey, yeah, you enjoy Celine Dion, you enjoy Celine Dion. I don't. I'm not <laughs> going to go watch a, a, a concert with her. But hey, whatever floats your boat. Exactly. So I, honestly, I think people are really surprised when they hear that I'm such a fan. Just because it doesn't, I don't think it matches with the other genres of music that I like. Mm -hmm. And my kind of like sometimes wild, crazy personality. I don't, I don't think they see that. Perhaps. All right. Switching gears to what's the worst job you've ever had and why? Hmm. Well, years ago. Okay. So while I was in college during the summers, every summer, my childhood friends and I, so again, I grew up in a very small suburb of Boston and I've been friends with a lot of the same people since kindergarten and first grade. Because when you grow up in a very small town, you're all like family. There are only 100 kids in my graduating class, high school class. So every summer, my, my hometown friends and I, while we were in college, you know, we, were all, we, we all went to different colleges. We lived on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, resort, you know, beach resort area. And every summer I had a job, I had several jobs. Uh, my first summer, I waitressed and worked at a bead store making bead necklaces. My second and third summer, I worked at a radio station. I was an intern. That's why, you know, I commented on your smooth voice. I was an intern. I did marketing campaign. I also DJed a little bit. And that was when they were just starting to transition from CDs and tapes to touchscreen. I was sure. literally there for the transition where the DJ could set everything up leave the room, leave the booth for one hour and come back. And everything was set up like uh, commercial breaks, songs, everything was queued up. So I was there. That was summer of 98 for that transition from popping in the cassettes and CDs to touchscreen. It was a really, really cool thing to observe in the world of music and radio. But so I did the internship, but well, my second summer on Cape Cod at one of my waitressing jobs, I was at a restaurant called Hearth and Kettle. And I had to dress up as a colonial woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's how. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I and shouldn't I have be laughing. Sorry. I have a scrapbook. I used to make, I used to be one of those, per I, I still love taking pictures. I took pictures of everything and would immediately develop the film and put it in my album. So I have all these albums in the 1990s and early 2000s 
of my adventures because that's what you know we didn't have digital back then so I have a picture of me but I had to wear a colonial girl outfit and it was a long colonial dress with the, the big bonnet mm-hmm. and the apron and in uh, Massachusetts in the summers it's really humid you know it's it's humid sure. and a lot of places don't have AC because you only really need it for a couple months so Imagine a 90 degree night in a colonial girl outfit, waiting tables, you know, you had to I wear- will be forever grateful if you can share that photo. I will find the photo. If you can. Oh, I, I definitely have it. And my roommates would laugh at me. Oh my gosh. Every time I'm leaving <laughs> or we always had parties. So I'd come home from waitressing at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night and my house would be full of guests. And I show up in my colonial, you know, I walk in from my, my work and I'm in a colonial outfit. So it was, um, it was, it was a tough job. It was also, the, you know, the first summer waitressing, it wasn't at such a touristy place, but that colonial girl outfit, that restaurant was very touristy and it was stressful. So I always had to carry big trays and I did drop one one night and that was, that was devastating for me. I dropped someone's entire order, lobsters, every, I mean, it was just like, crazy and i also had a table walk out on me after ordering they just left you know diamond ditch or whatever people call it mm-hmm. um they ordered wine and champagne and lobster and fancy dessert <laughs> and bolted and i was wow. devastated yeah so that was that was that was a hard one yeah other than that i pretty much like my jobs um i nannied throughout grad school. And that was, you know, sometimes that was hard because um, they weren't my own kids that I had to, you know, but I think that that's the job that the colonial girl job, waitress job was. Takes the cake. Yeah. If you could choose one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> Napping a button and having everything clean. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if that's just a stereotypical mom answer, but I have a feeling that Julie would say the same thing. Right. My mom would say the same thing. And like, I, I in- wonder if non-moms are similarly OCD. Uh, some are. Some would say, you know, I know some people that would just snap their finger and, you know, they're on vacation. I think just snapping it. Um, but also I think healing powers or, you know, on a more serious note, like being mm-hmm. able to heal, you know, if the superpower of just healing people sure. would be really cool. Yeah, I think that's why I've been attracted to like the, the natural medicine and the herbal medicine and that holistic mm-hmm. lifestyle that I've always been drawn to. All right, cool. Uh, okay, so you said you wrote a book. I'm writing a book. Oh, you're writing a book. What I'm, is the book about? I'm writing a book. I can't disclose the title just yet. It's a surprise. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm in the process right now of getting IRB approval. So the institutional review board, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, IRB, right? Yes. Okay. So just for listeners out there, anytime you in, do research on humans, human subjects, whether you're doing, you know, medical research or just interviewing them, not touching them physically, but just talking to them when you're at, when affiliated with a college or institution, you have to get, I, well, you, you should get IRB approval if you plan to publish any of your results. So the Institutional Review Board at Palm Beach State currently has my application. They they um, got it in March, but because of, you know, 
of the sure. quarantine. It's been a little bit delayed. And I need them because I plan to interview Palm Beach State students. Um, mm -hmm. The first couple chapters are written because I don't have interviews, but basically I'm interviewing students and students who really can say their life has been changed because of state college. Students that really can say that despite all odds, here they are getting a degree and perhaps transferring now to an Ivy League or transferring to a four-year institution and maybe they're the first in their family. Students who have defied all kinds of odds, um, some on the immigration level, some, oh, sure. some living in complete poverty uh, in a hotel room. Um, so I've had these amazing stories over the years, and I've been teaching since 1999. So, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. I'm thinking of a gentleman named John Smith. He's one of, that's his actual name, John Smith. Uh, he's one of my mentors in Project Slope, which is a research fellowship I have uh, through the American Mathematical Association of two-year colleges. So his PhD, which he finished recently, was, I don't want to butcher the name, but he did something very similar. Now, his work might have been a little too close to mathematics. Mm -hmm. But I'll share his contact information with you if you want any insight Please. on how he conducted interviews. And he has this wonderful, he has the ethos of a grandfather. Well, he is a grandfather, so, but he also has, you know, you can be a grandfather, but not speak like one. Uh, even if he weren't a grandfather, you would say that, okay, he sounds like a grandpa. And he has this uh, very admirable ability to disarm you and get you to say what you really want to say, not by you know, tricking you into something, but genuinely being interested in, in, in hearing what you have to say. And I know that he did, well, through his dissertation, he came up with either ways of asking questions uh, that, that might be of, of interest to you. I would so, love to contact him. I really would love to contact him. And he's at... Pellissippi State College in Tennessee, great. which is a, a similar institution as Palm Beach okay, State. Okay, great. So similar, um, similar institution. So similar demographics, similar student population, uh, not exactly the same, but he, he would have come across similar challenges amongst the student population. Great. Yeah, I would love to. So that might be a good connection to make. Thank you. Please you know, send me his information after this. But yes, um, so just teaching and a lot of my teaching since 99-2000, I would say maybe 60% of it because I have been at some universities and so forth. But even while I was at universities teaching, I always had part-time gigs mm -hmm. at community colleges or, you know, at state colleges or community colleges. And that is the population I, I feel that I'm a fit for. I do. I feel that I, over my years, I've just seen so much growth in students and following them. I still have students now randomly emailing me from when I taught in California. Uh, one's a pharmacist and they, they took my public speaking class in San Diego years ago because it was a requirement to get to pharmacy sure. school. And now they're doing all this cool research as a pharmacist. And he said, you know, I never understood why I needed your class until now. And because I'm presenting and I'm going around talking about my pharmaceutical work and so forth. So it's, it's so inspiring 
to me also to listen to their stories. I work at Palm Beach State also with honor students. So I'm mm -hmm. the honors liaison for the Boca campus. And um, actually the other day, one of our honor students just won the Jack Kent Cook Scholarship. So he'll be receiving $40,000 a year to continue wow. his education. And we've had several come out of Palm Beach State. It's a scholarship awarded, I think, to only 10 or 12 out of the United States. Holy cow. So, and we've had a lot come out of Palm Beach State. Mm -hmm. um, so they have scholarships for people graduating high school and then scholarships for people finishing a two-year school going to a, a you know going sure and to a four-year right and it's it's amazing so and you know seeing students and all all different backgrounds but I'm just always amazed with the students you know if you were to look at them in the general population and so I'm sure some of their high school teachers said oh you're you're not gonna go anywhere in life you know you're just go you know, work at whatever place because don't even bother with college. Those are the students when they, when they, you know, decide on their own to go to college, Palm Beach State, and they get the motivation and they get their first A maybe ever. Those mm -hmm. are the students that just soar, just soar. And they're amazing. Uh, and all, you know, all the students are amazing, but these, these students who maybe never saw school in their future and now have completely took a passion to it. Um, took a liking to it and have this passion for education. It's amazing. I had another student a couple of years ago, um, you know, not traditional age student. She was in her late thirties. She had children. She had, she had survived so many things in life. You can't even imagine. And my book will go into more detail and finished Palm beach state. Now she's finishing a pre-law degree and she's going to be a family lawyer. Wow. And these are the stories which inspire me every day. Uh, these students who, if you had looked at them five years ago, 10 years ago, or in her case, 20 years ago, you would have thought, well, in, in some cases, they maybe weren't going anywhere. You know, they were into addiction or some even incarcerated or some um, didn't even have money to live. And then for different circumstances, you know, different circumstances happened and they ended up in college. And Palm Beach State, among other community or two-year colleges, were anyone. I forgot the technical term. Um, open access Thank you. Open access. Open access. And it's so important because I've heard throughout my years in academia, and maybe you have too, oh, well, you know, when maybe high school kids, oh, well, you know, you can always go to Palm Beach State or you can always go to, you know, John Smith Community College or... Uh, sure. And some people are like, oh, you know, they, they, they say, no, 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 but yes, 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 right? Yes, 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 because you can get a great education, personalized education for the fraction of the cost, or if you're a high-achieving student for free. You know, so many of my honor students, they're not paying for Palm Beach State, and they're not going to pay for their, their next institution because they are awarded scholarships. Mm -hmm. And... There's there's so many ways where you can really um, take advantage of all the benefits that the state college, the two-year college has to offer. And it's, it's just great when I see students that are really um, making the best out of it. They're, they're taking advantage of all the opportunities and they're on their path. And I'm so happy for them. And that's what the book is about.
So each chapter is a different student, a different journey. And these stories, again, some of these stories are hard to read. Sure. Um, some of the stories, they're almost like movies, what some of these students have been through, whether it's in this country or in a different country or even in the, in, you know, in their local neighborhood, some of the, the things they've overcome to be in school. And, you know, I, I asked some of them, you know, just from casual conversation, you know, where would you be if there wasn't an open access Palm Beach state? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just amazing. It's amazing. So I don't think there's enough attention given in our country to these students and to institutions like ours. Well, I certainly hope that the book does that. Me too. Or remedies <laughs> it, not that it continues the path, but I hope that it remedies it. And please do share. I, I will certainly buy it whenever it comes out. Yes. Well, once I get the official IRB approval, uh, I can start writing the other chapters that involve the Palm Beach State students. Mm-hmm. I can start, um, you know, continuing, like making the conversations I have with them official and interviewing them and, recru- you know, recruiting more for the other interviews. And once that's in process, I'll definitely, I want to, you know, get it out and have like a, book party and, you know, spread the word because I, again, I think it's important for everybody who's in higher ed. I think, well, we have an appreciation for what we do, but I think just maybe others outside don't realize the opportunities people are given at colleges like ours. I look forward to reading it. Whenever, whatever comes out of this, it, it certainly sounds like a worthwhile. Yeah, it's been something uh, I've been thinking project. about for about three years, mm-hmm. and it's now it's time. It's time to, you know, make it bloom. All right. Well, for the last question, what title would you give this podcast and or this episode? Right. I've often wondered <laughs> why. The title of your podcast is My Podcast Needs a Title. I Need a Title. It's, it's I Need a Title podcast. It, it, it came out of a conversation that I was having with a couple of my students during those uh, bring your own meal to Zoom meetings. And uh, the students saw the mic, so they said, hey, you should start a podcast. Just because I have a mic, I should start a podcast. <laughs> but eventually the idea was, or through my conversations with them, I realized that the most successful companies historically have not done something new. They've improved upon what other people have already done, but perhaps not well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were plenty of laptops and desktops before Apple started making them, but they made it better. There were plenty of mobile phones. Apple made a better mousetrap. So, you know, the world uses an iPhone now. Uh, it, it's, or, you know, there were voice assistants, Apple made a better one. So I I looked at successful podcasters and what they were able to do. And it was more so if you can get someone else to generate content for you, then you don't run out of ideas because someone else will always give you something, whether it's good or bad, you run with it. That's a risk you take. But if I have to come up with a, with a title, there's a very good chance that people might not like it or people might look at it and say, well, that doesn't sound appealing. They might still think the same thing about I need a title podcast, but at least that's what my my thought process was, that if I can get people 
to come up with questions, which I was going to send you an email after I, after we ended, Hey, can I have three or four questions to ask the next person? Uh, you know, getting to know someone is easy. Tell me about yourself. That's an easy question to ask. Uh, but then I think there's value in, in connecting the different episodes and you don't know who the next person is, but it would be nice to see what you would want to ask someone else that perhaps you don't know well. So the questions aren't necessarily pointy to the point where, you know, uh, the, the next person is John Smith. And then you say, oh, I want to know this, this, and this about John Smith. The questions have to be kind of sort of broad, although they don't have to be. They're your questions. And whatever you ask, I ask the next person. Um, so the the not giving the title to a pod to the podcast or to the episode was uh, my way of not having right. to be creative right? and also leveraging other people's ideas. So I didn't have to do the hard work. Well, I do like it. Well, thank you. <laughs> I do like this podcast as an, or I need a title podcast. It's kind of, <laughs> cause it made me think, you know, when I saw it, I was like, Oh, is this a typo or oh, that's the title. <laughs> and it's humorous. It's kind of satirical. So um, you could also do like, well, this is afternoon, but it could be afternoons with Anurag. It could be tea, talking with teachers, but I don't know if everyone will be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Lessons outside of the classroom. I mean, you could, it depends if you want to keep it like an academic. Well, this is assuming you're taking over the podcast oh, from now I until the end of the- If I was taking over the podcast. Yes. What would you title it? It, it, this is your podcast now for the next 10 seconds or for how long, however long you want it. Trusting yourself with Dr. Trust. Interesting. Because I've always thought that as long as you can trust in yourself and you listen to yourself and you're secure in your decisions, you'll be okay. And my last name happens to be Trust. So I often use that. Um, like my so there's former, multiple layers there. There's a lot of layers. So that's, so if it was my podcast, I think I would go along, you know, something with my last name and trust. Very cool. Well, thank you very, very much. It was an absolute delight talking to you. Thank and you hopefully so we'll do much. this again. Thank you for this opportunity because, um, it's, it's, it's fun to think back. And I'm sure you do this if someone asks you how you started teaching. You know, it's mm -hmm. fun to think back at all the paths that you've crossed and the journeys you've taken to end up where you are. And it's, it's really interesting. It's nice to reminisce. So thank you so much for asking me to be. What number am I? Guest five or six or seven? Well, um, you're guest four, but I don't, as you might have noticed, yeah. I don't do it chronologically or even in, in numerical sequence. So I'll have to come up with a number that's unique to you. I haven't thought of it yet. Um, Nat was episode 100 because why not? Right. Elena uh, asked her son and that's why, what her favorite, what his favorite number was. And he said 18. So she's episode 18. And Tim is episode six. I won't share why. I, okay. I, I left that open as a challenge to see if anyone could figure out why he's episode six. Um, you do the same. Ask the kiddos what numbers they think of when they think of you. 
oh no, I never mind. You don't have to do that. I just realized I have a way of numbering your your episode. Okay. I think uh, you're aware of it as well. It was a question I asked you to ask the three-year-old, and I'll use the answer to that question. Awesome. That's right. So we'll see if anyone else can figure out what that question was. It's about as random as it could be, but we'll see if anyone can sort it out. (laughs) Great. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and I've enjoyed listening to the the two that I've listened to. there's one that I released last night with Tim. I listened Tim to that. Sinisky. Okay. Chemistry. Um, yes. Yes. I've, he spoke to my honor students this semester. So it was great to hear him in the podcast. And I listened to the first half of Helena's. I have to go back mm-hmm. and listen to the second half. I got interrupted with the kids. So uh, great. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. you so much. Take care. Have a nice Take day. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for the conversation, Rhonda. Next week, I talk to a communications professor at the Boca campus, affectionately called the Cool Cucumber. Because as quickly as I walked in that room as a GTA to teach, I walked right back out of it. So I come in the room. Like you actually walked in and then walked out? Oh, I left after maybe like two minutes. So I came in. So this is not like you mentally walking in and then checking out. You you physically left the room. This is physically walking in, thinking you're ready for something, having your syllabus, feeling prepared, seeing 28 strangers look up at you. And this is what really tweaked me. Tune in next Friday to find out how that story ends. Until next time, for another 95 times, take care.